Our scripture reading this morning is from the first chapter of John, the first 18 verses, verses 1 through 18, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. May the Lord bless this reading of his scripture. Let's pray. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above you, heavenly host. Praise Father Son, and Holy Ghost. Oh, how I pray, Father, that you would set our hearts to worship this morning. How I pray that you would transport us into the place where the angels are, where the sight of what you have done in Jesus Christ is very clear. There is no fog, there is no shadow, there is no darkness, but all can see what you have done. All can see the manifestation of your glory through grace and through truth, through mercy and through confrontation. God, I pray this morning that you would come near to us. I pray that you would help me as I preach, and I pray that you would help all of us as we hear. I pray that you would exalt yourself by the Word, and I pray that you would change our lives. Lord, this is not the first time most of us have heard the Christmas message, but I pray that it would live for us today. I pray that it would be real for us today. I pray that it would cause real transformation in our lives, not only this day, but in the coming days. Father, I pray that 2011 would be marked by an experience of the Holy Spirit that happened here this morning. I pray that you again would escort us into that place where the angels dwell and where the sight is very clear. I love you, Father, and I trust you for all this. In the great name of Jesus Christ, amen. In the beginning was the Word. These opening words of the Gospel of John hearken back to the opening words of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which go like this. In the beginning 
God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the power of God. In the beginning was the creative force of God that caused something to come out of absolutely nothing. That caused all things to come into existence so that all things have no other source than God Himself. And this power, this Word, this creative force that caused all things to exist was with God. And what is more, the Bible says that this Word, this power, this creative force was God. He was with God in the beginning. This means that when God created all things, He did not pull on a power from outside of Himself to create. He did not even muster up something within Himself that's not equal to Himself to create. Rather, the power, the force, the Word that caused all things to come into existence is equal to the very being of God. God is the Creator. And the force that did the creating is God Himself. They are one and the same. John doesn't mention his name until verse 29, but soon enough he makes clear that this Word, this power, this creative force that caused all things to come into existence is Jesus Christ Himself. So we can read the first few words of the Gospel of John like this. In the beginning was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was with God, and Jesus Christ was God. He was with God in the beginning. Beloved, this is a, a great mystery. It's perhaps the greatest mystery of all mysteries, that God is one God, but in three distinct persons. One God, three persons. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in the beginning, God the Father created all things through God the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the creative force through which all things were created, through which all things gain their existence, and to which all things owe their existence. In other words, beloved, Jesus Christ is God. John says in verse 3, All things were made through Him, that is, through the Word, through Jesus Christ. And without Him was nothing made, was not anything made that has been made. Paul wrote in Colossians 1.16, For by Him, by Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible things and invisible things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Beloved, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the direct Creator of the universe. And because that's true... Jesus Christ has been closer to each of us than we could ever have imagined, even down to this very moment. Right now, the Lord Jesus Himself is closer than our very breath. Jesus Christ personally handcrafted every star that you've ever seen in the sky. Jesus Christ personally gave shape to the sun and to the moon, which have given us light all the days of our lives. Jesus Christ has personally handcrafted every ocean and mountain and contour of land upon which our eyes or our feet have ever set. Jesus Christ personally crafted every lake you've ever been on, every fish you've ever caught. 
He's personally responsible for creating every piece of property on which you've ever lived. When you walk around in your yard, you're walking on the handiwork of Jesus Christ. Not just God in a general sense, but Jesus in particular is all over it. His fingerprints are on the ground on which you walk. Jesus Christ created every bird of the sky, every creature in the sea, every animal on this earth, including every pet every one of us has ever owned. He knew their names before we knew their names. Bella, my dog, is the favorite dog I've ever had in my life. Jesus Christ knew her before I knew her. He personally handcrafted that animal and gave her as a gift to our family. Jesus Christ has crafted every wind you've ever felt, every storm you've ever heard blow through the land. He's created everything you've ever seen, ever heard, ever touched, ever tasted, ever felt. He personally knit you together inside your mother's womb with His own hands. He didn't delegate this to someone else. He did it. And He crafted the womb in which you were crafted. Jesus Christ has personally provided you with eyes that see and ears that hear and lungs that breathe and hearts that beat and bodies that at least in some measure work. He has personally done this. Jesus Christ is God, beloved. He is the Creator of all things and He has been nearer to us than we could ever have imagined for the entirety of our lives, even down to this very moment. And because this is so, John says this in verses 4 and 5. In Him, that is in the Word, in Jesus Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As Jesus Himself said later, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So when Christ gives life, beloved, He doesn't pull from something outside of Himself to give you life as though that's a gift. When Christ gives you life, He gives you Himself. The only way to have life is to be connected with Jesus Christ, the Creator of all things. Even those who don't believe in Him are gaining their life from Him right this moment. He sustains all things by the Word of His power. And if He gave the Word, your life would end just like that. Just like that. The only way to have life is to be connected with Him who is life. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, He said, this is eternal life. He was praying to the Father. And He said, this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. In other words, the only way to have life, true life, real life, deep life, joy-filled life, is to be connected with Him who is life. To be in communion with Him who is God. And God is Jesus Christ. To have life is to walk with Him and talk with Him and to listen to Him and learn from Him and submit to Him, to obey Him, to sing to Him, enjoy Him, love Him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. To have life is to have Jesus. To have Jesus is to have life. There is no other source. There is no other way to have life. But herein lies a a major, major problem for all of us. Last week we saw at least a little glimpse of the fact that God is infinitely holy. He said that He is a holy God and He means it. He cannot withstand any measure of sin and there is no darkness in Him at all. James says in the first chapter of his letter that there's not even a shifting shadow inside of God. There's not even a hint of darkness in Him. He is pure light. He is pure holiness. And there is no shade or shadow in Him at all. 
Those in the East are totally wrong when they talk about yin and yang, that there is light and dark in the Creator. There is not light and dark in the Creator. The Bible says God is light and in Him is what? No darkness at all. He is perfectly pure. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly true and therefore He cannot tolerate sin and He will not tolerate sin in His presence. Not even for a moment and not for any given reason, not for any given person. But here's the problem. From the very beginning, our ancestors and even us have been doing basically nothing but sinning. We are deeply corrupt human beings and it seems at times that all we do is sin. At first, Adam and Eve had a clear and easy command from God, but what did they do? They pushed it aside, and they trusted in their own wisdom, and they decided to live life on their terms and to shun the command of God, to shun the wisdom of God, to shun the mercy of God. And in this way, they brought the curse of God not only upon themselves, but upon all those who would come from them, which is all of us. And since that day, from that day down to this day, every single one of us has made that same choice. Every one of us has chosen to look at the commands of God, reject them, and live life our own way. We have given in to the lie that God did not really speak to us, or that God's commands did not really matter. And so we followed in a way that was not His. We've given in to the desires of our flesh and thought that we knew better how to get pleasure for ourselves than God knew how to give it for us, to us. And the issue is that we will do this over and over and over and over again until the day we die because we're deeply corrupt human beings. You've probably heard this text from Jeremiah before, chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. This is a, something we should take personally. This is about us. This is like a, the, the greatest psychologist in the universe diagnosing us. He said, The heart is deceitful above all things. Above all things. Our biggest problem in this world is not Satan. It's not the world. It's this wicked heart inside of us. The heart is deceitful above all things. We can hide from the world all we want, but at the end of the day, the problem lies inside. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, it's so sick, who can even get their mind around it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. I blaze my eyes through your eyes. I see to the depth of your soul. You cannot hide from me. I search the heart. I test the mind to give to every man and woman according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. In other words, beloved, we are wicked We are deceitful. We are straying kind of people. And God must punish us for that. He must punish our sin. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a just God. He's a true God. And He cannot, He will not tolerate darkness or or, or, or sin in His presence. He cannot. And as I said, this is a massive problem because there's not a single one of us who hasn't sinned. Nobody's left out of this. We have all fallen away. Here's what David said in Psalm 14. He said, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They mean us. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. He's looking for one person who's truly going after Him. And what does He find? They have all turned aside. 
Together they have all become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's God's diagnosis of us. We can tell Him whatever we'd like, but He has the eyes who see all things. Beloved, only a handful of people would actually deny with their mouths that there is a God. In other words, the, the percentage of atheists on this planet is actually very small. They may be growing in numbers, but their percentages are pretty flat. There's not many people who would deny the existence of God. There are people all over this planet worshiping something. Many of them are worshiping false things, but the reason they have to worship is because there's an instinct inside of our hearts that knows there's a God. I even heard a, a really prominent atheist a couple of months ago. I was listening to a debate with him and someone else, and he even admitted in a private moment after he'd had a couple of drinks that he saves a little space in his mind for the possibility that God exists. And the reason he does that is because he knows inside there's a God. He knows it. He can be bold from a pulpit in public, but after he's had a couple of drinks and mellows out a little bit, he knows there's a God. We have an instinct inside of us that knows God is. Very few would say there is no God. However, every time we sin, we essentially say that with the way we live our lives. Every time we sin, we scream with our lives, there is no God. There is no commander. There is no lawgiver. There is no one to whom I must account for my life. Every time we sin, we say with our lives that we are free to live in any way we want to live, to do anything we want to do, and that we don't have to answer to anybody but ourselves. But beloved, this is difficult maybe for us to hear as Americans, but it's true. We are not free. No human being has ever been free. No human being was ever intended to be free, at least in light of the relationship with God. He is the Creator. We are the created. And therefore, we are never and will never be free from Him. We are not a law unto ourselves. We are not. We don't, our lives don't even belong to us. Everything we have is borrowed from God. The moon would cease to shine if you remove the sun because all the light of the, sun, of the moon is borrowed. And all life inside of each of us is borrowed, beloved. If God removed it from us, we would die in a moment. A couple of weeks ago, some of you had a front row seat at the drama where I got some food stuck in my chest and I almost choked to death. If it wasn't for Greg, I might not be preaching this morning. I mean it. I could not breathe at all. Praise be to God, He spared my life. But as I meditated on that experience, I realized how fickle life is. I have no right to this life. A little tiny piece of roast beef could take it just like that. Just like that. I am not free. I am bound to Him who has created me. And the Bible says that we are all either slaves of God and His righteousness, or we are slaves of sin and our own sinfulness. One way or the other, we are slaves. We are not free. And each of us will give an account to Him who created us. We will. There will be no escape. And when we do stand before Him face to face, when we do give an account for our lives, there will be no way for us to, dis- to, to, to uh, get out from under His just punishment. There will be no way for us to escape His wrath because we will be found to be guilty. Period. You know, whenever someone comes at us and says, you did this wrong or you did that wrong, our instinct now is to do whatever we have to do to weasel out of it, to explain it away, why we didn't mean to do it or why it was okay for us to do it or whatever. We're always trying to weasel out of stuff. 
in the day when God calls us to account, and by the way, He said, you will account for every single word you have ever spoken in your life. Can you imagine that? I mean, God remembers every word you've spoken. We're going to have to account at that level. When He confronts us with our sin, there'll be no way to weasel out of it because all the evidence will be right there. No one will be able to deny it. It'll be in living color for everybody to see. We will not be able to explain it away. We will not. No matter what, the eyes of Him who see all things will see into us and we will be exposed, period. And the problem is, there's a price to pay for that sin. You do not thumb your nose at God without paying a price. He is a holy God, a righteous God, and He will protect His glory at all costs. So we have a a price to pay. Now therein lies another problem, a huge problem. Who's going to have the resources to pay the price? Who will? I will not have the resources to pay the bill that's due from me to God. And I won't be able to borrow it because guess what? Everybody else I know will be in the same boat. Everybody will be in the same boat. Huge bill, no capital. This housing crisis in America is something we should think about and use as a metaphor for what it might be like when we stand before God. Imagine a day when all the house prices in America just plummet and everybody's upside down in their mortgage. Everybody owes more than they can pay. Nobody will lend you any money because nobody has any money to lend you. That will be the situation before God times about a million We will all have a huge price to pay, no capital to pay it with, no one to borrow from, and we will be stuck. We will be stuck. When I was a little kid, my brother, who was 16 years older than me, was married to his first wife, and they had one daughter. And from the outside, they seemed to be very happy. I have so many memories of hanging out with them, and they're all very happy memories. I just love being around them. I looked up to my big brother, even to this day, even though he's in the world, there's a part of me that still looks up to him because he's my big brother. And I admired him. I admired their marriage. And even from a, a little, a young age, I remember thinking to myself and dreaming about the day when I would be married and thinking I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be happy like them. I wanted to do the kinds of things that they did. But somehow, behind the scenes where nobody could see, they began to have problems with each other. And the situation became so serious that they ended up separating, even though they had a child. And they ended up divorcing. And they hated one another so much that they never spoke to one another, only except when they absolutely had to. And that wasn't very often. So it's been some 30 some odd years now since they divorced. And still from that day to this day, there has been a total break in their communion with one another. Whatever happened behind the scenes, I don't know. But somehow or another sin came in and it broke the relationship so badly that two people who were once married, united in marriage, won't even speak to each other for three decades. And I call that to mind, beloved, because most all of us have either been in a situation like that or we're familiar with situations like that. We know how that feels. We know how that looks. We know how that is. And that is a metaphor for the situation between a very holy God and unholy sinners. There's no broken relationship you've ever seen in your life that's as bad as the break between a holy God and unholy sinners. It's really bad. Our sin is worse than we think it is. It really is. The price that has to be paid is higher than we think it is. It really is. And the break in the relationship between us and God is much deeper than we've ever imagined. When I was in the world, 
I used to think to myself that God would still accept me because I thought I was a good person. It's crazy that I thought that. I was a drug addict and doing all kinds of stuff that drug addicts do. But I thought, well, I'm good enough. God will forgive me and accept me. Boy, did I get shocked when I read the Bible and found out that wasn't true and there was a deep break in the relationship between me and Him. It was very serious and at that moment, by His grace, I came to know that it was true. Beloved, the problem that we have with God is very serious and even for those of us who believe in Christ, I pray that we'll meditate upon that and take it seriously. It's not something we should take lightly. But at this point in the story... The best news that the world has ever heard enters into the world and comes into play because praise be to God, in the depth of His heart, even though He's holy, He is also slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Praise be to His name. He doesn't have to be like that, but He is. The Bible says He is rich with mercy. And the word it uses there means like overflowing, overabounding. So imagine a cup being poured into and it just keeps flowing over and flowing over. That's the mercy of God. He's rich, rich, rich in mercy. And He loves unholy sinners just like us. And because He is so merciful, He made a way for us when we could make no way for ourselves. He decided to make a payment for us that we could never make for ourselves. And that way was the Word. That way was the power of God. That way was the creative force of God. That way was Jesus Christ, who Himself is God, the Creator of all things. This is the glory of the grace of God. Beloved, God was very gracious when He called Moses to be His special servant, and through Moses He revealed the law to the people of Israel and eventually to all of mankind. The law was His gracious way of intermediating, if you will, mediating a a broken relationship between a holy God and an unholy people. And it was absolutely all about grace. Jesus Christ came full of grace even in the days of Moses. And we'll see that in the next year as we go through the Pentateuch together. It was all about grace. But as gracious as God was in those days, everything He revealed to Moses was pointing toward another day. It was pointing toward a greater grace. It was pointing toward a day that even the angels couldn't imagine when God Himself, who is holy, 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 would take on flesh and dwell among us and pay a price that we could never pay. Here's what John says, chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, beloved, we have heard these words so many times. I pray that you just ask the Lord now to help you let them sink in. Let me read them again. Just let them sink in. Think about all I've been saying. Let these things sink in. And the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, through whom the Father created all things, entered into the womb of Mary, a womb which He Himself had knitted together. Think about that. Jesus Christ knit together personally with His own hands the very womb into which He entered. And He allowed Himself to go through the process of becoming a living, breathing human being just like you and me. The Creator of all things submitted Himself to the process of creation which He Himself had designed. That's how humble our God is. 
And in this way, He took on flesh and He came to dwell among us. Or the Greek literally reads here that He pitched His tent among us. So it says, He took on flesh and He pitched His tent among us. Now that word, pitched His tent, I want to think about it for a second. Often in the Bible, it does just mean that a person like set up shop and stayed somewhere for a, a, a time. It generally has this feeling of a temporary deal. You know, he stayed there for a while and moved on. But sometimes in the Bible, the word just gets used that way. He pitched a tent, or they pitched their tent there, and then they moved on somewhere else. So it may be just fine to translate this the way that the ESV did, and just say that Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. That may be what John means. But anybody who knows the Bible well, I think when you hear these words, that He pitched His tent and we have seen His glory... I think you can't help but hear the echoes of Exodus when you hear that. Because in the days of Moses, God commanded that another tent be erected for him. You remember this. We call it the tabernacle. There was an outer court, an inner court, a holy place, and a most holy place. And it was a place wherein God would dwell in a special way among His people. The presence of God is beyond anything we could imagine. And it can never be contained in a building. It can never be contained in a tent. The whole earth cannot contain the presence of God. And the Bible is very clear about that. But in that particular tent, God said, I will dwell among my people in a special way, in a powerful way, in even a visible way. And I will give access to people to me. Unholy people getting access to an absolutely holy God, but they'll have to do it on my terms. And so when the time was full, Moses erected that tent with the help of others exactly according to the pattern that the Lord had showed him. And when he had built the tent completely and all the parts were put in place, a most amazing thing happened, which Moses recorded at the very end of the book of Exodus. Here is Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting. Now this cloud, you remember this. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And there was the Lord on top of the mountain, descended upon it as a cloud. And there was thunder and lightning. It looked like the mountain was on fire. It was the cloud of the presence of the glory of God. And now that cloud covers the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, filled the tent And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. So you've all probably seen fog so thick that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was just like that. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It filled the tent that they had made. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken out up, They did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So, think about all that. Have all that in mind. Now listen again to what John said. And the Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God pitched another tent among us in the days of Jesus, but this time it was Himself. He physically manifested Himself. And beloved, it is such great news that when He did that, He came full of grace and truth. He could have come filled with fire and fury. And the Bible says that one day He will. 
We better take heed to this warning. The Bible says one day Jesus Christ will come to the earth again like a thief in the night. Just like that. He will manifest so that every eye sees and He will come to judge the world this time. But at His first coming, He came filled with grace and truth, ready and eager to forgive every single person who would believe in Him. Ready and eager to restore us to a right relationship with our Creator and to fix the mess that we had made through our sin. Now the truth of the matter, as John says, is that every human being before Christ and since Christ has received grace upon grace upon grace from Him. Remember, He's the Creator. He is this singular Creator of all things. So even people in other parts of the world, in our own country, that don't believe in Jesus, right this moment they are receiving grace upon grace upon grace upon grace from Jesus. Because they deserve His judgment, but instead He's giving them life. He's given every single one of us life. He's given every one of us a measure of health. He's given us enough provision to sustain our lives. Even if we didn't think it was quite enough, He did it. And it was pure grace. It was pure mercy. He has given us senses so that we can feel and and experience pleasure to the glory of His name. He's given us the capacity to love and to be loved. He's given us the knowledge that He exists in a heart to go after Him. He is pouring grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We sin. We offend. We shun Him. He He keeps pouring out His grace upon us. Day after day after day after day after day. He sends His rain on the just and on the unjust and He lets the sun shine on the evil and on the good. We have all received from Him grace upon grace, mercy after mercy after mercy. But in these days, Jesus chose to manifest His grace in an unbelievable way, in a way I believe parts of the Bible teach even shocked the angels of heaven. This is part of what it means when it says the angels long to look into the things that we have come to know because they can't believe what God did when He Himself took on flesh and dwelt among us, pitched His tent among us, filled with grace and truth rather than fire and fury. And I do think that's John's point when he says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was a gracious gift of God to us, beloved, but as I've been saying to you over the last few weeks, all it does is increase our knowledge of sin. It doesn't actually solve the problem, it exposes the problem. When the Bible says, love God with everything you have and put Him first at all times, what it exposes is that we don't do that. It increases our sin. When it says, honor your father and your mother, all it does is expose the fact that we don't do that as we should and up to the standard of God. We don't. Every day we fall short. When it says, don't lie, don't covet, don't steal, don't commit adultery, all these things, all it does is expose to us the brokenness that's within us because we cannot obey these commands. Over time, we can't. So the sense of sin increases and increases and increases. And our sense of a need for a Savior increases and increases and increases. And there stands Jesus Christ. Instead of being full of judgment, full of quickness to punish for sin, He is full of grace. He is full of mercy. He is full of a willingness to forgive. He is full of a willingness to bring us back into His bosom and to make of us, in fact, children of God. John says in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, 
that all who receive Jesus Christ, all who believe in His name, He gives them the right to become children of God. That's mind-blowing. When we receive Jesus Christ and His forgiveness, we don't just become forgiven sinners. We become children of the Almighty. So think of this. Imagine you go to Washington, D.C. and you go into the White House and maybe while you're there you catch a glimpse of Barack Obama. You might do that, but I promise you if you try to approach him, they will jump on you very quickly, right? Nobody gets near to the President of the United States, not without a price to pay. But one of his daughters walks into the Oval Office, the most powerful office on the face of the earth, and she gets to go sit on his lap because that's her daddy and she's his child. And that's us, beloved, with God through Jesus Christ. You look to Jesus Christ, you believe in Him, you receive Him, you become a child of God. Welcome now in the very throne room of God that rules this universe. And you are free to come sit on His lap. He makes you a child, not just a forgiven sinner. This is the unbelievable grace of God. Jesus, even though He came filled with grace, beloved, He also says that He came filled with truth, and there's so much to be said about that, but let me just point out three quick things as we come to a close. To say that Christ came full of grace and truth means that He came to tell us the truth about our sins. The reason I wanted to take some time to make us feel the weight of our sin today is because that's what Jesus does. He's a truth teller. He didn't come to pat you on the back and say, oh, it's not so bad. You're going to be all right. You know what? It's actually worse than you think, and you're not going to be all right. He came to tell you the truth of your sin. He's like a doctor who knows what he's doing. He sees the cancer all throughout your body, and he's going to tell you the truth. He's not going to tell you that you just have a cold. He's going to tell you that you're going to die. He came filled with truth, even though he came filled with grace. But that leads to the second thing. To say He came filled with truth means He came to tell you the truth about how to solve the problem. It was not a popular solution in His day. It was not a popular solution in our day. He got killed for it in His day. Many of our brothers and sisters are being killed for it today. And that solution is this. The way, the truth, the life is Jesus Christ. And there's no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. He came to proclaim that message. And all who received Him, all who believed in Him, gained eternal life. Those who reject Him do not have eternal life. Number three, to say that He came filled with truth means that He came to shape our lives to be different than they were before we came to know Him. He came to teach us how to live in light of the truth, in other words. His grace does forgive, but it also transforms us. His grace does release us from the penalty of sin, but then it seeks to shape us into His image. He is incredibly gracious, and He's here right in this room right now to give grace to any person who would open up their heart and believe in His name right this moment. But when He does that, He will tell you the truth about where you're at. And that's one of the things I love about Christ the most. Every morning when I go to be with Him, and I open up my Bible, and I open up my journal, and I ask Him to speak to me, He tells me the truth, and I love that about Him. He sees deeply into my soul. The Bible says that the Word of God is piercing. It's like sharper than a double-edged sword. And I can't hide from Him. It's like eyes from God that pierces to the depth of my soul and exposes who I really am. And when it does, Jesus will tell me who I really am. He will tell me the truth. But praise be to His name, when He does that, He does it to pave the path for grace. 
Here's one way you can tell the difference between if Satan is kind of on your back or if Jesus Christ is trying to confront you about something. When Satan confronts you with something or points something out, you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to discourage you, to depress you, and to crush you. He does not want your life. He wants your death. So if you're living with this sense of guilt that is sort of a crushing, crushing sense of guilt, that's probably not coming from the Father. The Lord will confront you as well. But He reveals in order to forgive. He reveals in order to transform. He reveals to build you up. Satan reveals to smash you down. Jesus reveals to build you up to be more and more and more like Him. He came filled with grace and truth. He came filled with a grace that will tell you like it is, but that will transform you into His very image. And as I've said a few times now, all it takes to get all of that power to work in your personal life is to open up your heart and believe in Him. Humble yourself and say, Jesus, you're right about my sin. You're right about who you are. You're right about the solution to my sin. And therefore, I believe in you. I receive you. If you will do that, beloved, all his forgiveness will become yours. And he will begin to transform your life from one glory to another. I'm about 10 million miles away from being the kind of man that I want to be and that Christ has made me to be. But I'll tell you, over the last 24 years, the Lord has been incredibly merciful to me. One small step at a time, just changing me, changing me, changing me, changing me. Because His grace forgives, and it also transforms. And that's good for anyone who will believe. So I have two very quick applications. They're both very simple. First of all, believe in Jesus Christ this Christmas season. Believe in Him. If you've never believed in Him before, I want to invite you to open up your heart and believe in Him. He is God. He is the way, the truth, the life. The only way to get forgiveness and a reconciled relationship with God. So open up your heart and believe in Him. You know that there is an instinct inside of you that knows what I'm saying is true. God brought you here for a reason. You're not here for an act, for, as an accident. He brought you here. Something in you knows that what I'm saying is true. So just humble yourself. Lay down your arms. Believe in Christ. You'll become His child. If you believed in Him years ago, maybe you've believed a hundred times, a thousand times. Beloved, I want to say to you, you're never done believing. I'm never done believing. Every day I'm being converted by the Gospel. Every day I have to push my flesh aside and embrace the Spirit. So believe. 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 Look to Jesus Christ and believe in Him. He alone is life. So I just see a picture of us just grasping onto Him tighter and tighter and tighter. Believe this Christmas season, beloved. Believe. Second application is, first one is believe in Him. Second one is be like Him. Be like Him. And all I mean is be gracious in the way that He's been gracious towards you. This time of year is very hard for a lot of people. In fact, for years and years, for Kim and I, this was the hardest time of the year, year in and year out. There were times that it was just felt almost torturously hard because of all kinds of brokenness in our families that made the holidays really hard. The holiday season can be the most difficult time of year for people, and I know that that's the case for some of you. So I just want to encourage you to look to Jesus, not to your families. Look to Jesus for all the help you need and learn to be like Him. Don't be part of the drama. Be part of the solution. Learn to give the grace to others that He has given to you. So receive His grace, believe in Him, and then be His grace to others. Maybe through you, others will come to believe as well. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. In Him was life. The life was the light of men. The light has shone into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus Christ. He has made Him known. Let's pray. Lord, I can hardly find the words to say what I'm feeling in my heart. Feelings of gratefulness to You for Your amazing mercy as I have pondered my sin day after day this week, thought about this message, known what I was going to say, and just felt the weight of my life and how I have lived. Oh, Father, if You treated any of us according to our sins, we would all be crushed. But praise be to God, You are more rich in mercy than we can imagine, and You have made a way to forgive us. And I pray that we would all take advantage of that now, whether we're believing for the first time or the hundredth time or the thousandth time. I pray that we would humbly reach our arms out to You and embrace You and receive from You and be changed by You. Oh God, please make us a visible display of Your mercy on planet Earth. And God, I want to pray for each of us as we celebrate Christmas with our families this week at different times. I want to pray that You would put Your grace upon us, a grace to serve. God, please help us to be like You in the midst of our families. And I pray especially for those who have very difficult family situations where there's deep pain, deep hurt, deep wounds. Father, these things are real and I don't want to make light of them, but I do pray that You would come into them and overcome them and help us as Your people to be Your light in very dark places. We love You. We thank You for Your grace and we pray that You would show it now in Your great name. Amen.